We must search for what is truth. You doubt me. Seek proof. What is truth? And what is God? The first duty is to the truth, whether it's scientific truth or historical truth or personal truth. Then here is the proof you seek. You don't really want an answer to that question. Welcome to the AXPX Podcast, Season 4, Episode 6. I am Sean DeRager, and we are continuing with our series, Processing Belief Through Music. This is Part 2, and today we're talking to Derek Webb. I do want to let you all know before we get started that I am doing a bonus podcast called The AXPX Diaries. It's available only to patrons or as I call them, uh, patron saints. You can go to patreon.com slash the AXPX and sign up there. It's only $1 a month, and then you'll get this extra weekly 30-minute episode that is a lot more personal. I talk about a lot of the things that I'm thinking about during the week, and hopefully it's something that uh, you can take with you and would and will value. You can find all these links over at the AXPX.com, links to all the social media, and of course, you can join the conversation on Twitter. The handle is the AXPX. Now, as we're going through this series, processing belief through music, I have thrown out um, a voicemail number, and I would like to gather your stories for this show. As you heard last week, we had a couple people call in and, and leave their stories. My question is, how has music helped you process your faith, your doubt, or your disbelief? If you'd like to share your story, just call this number. It's 951-723-5586. Again, 951-723-5586. It's a simple voicemail line. And please just let me know uh, how music has helped you process your own faith, your doubt, or your disbelief. I look forward to your stories. Hey there, Sean and Armchair Philosopher Podcast. Uh, this is Tim Buell. I'm a musician and filmmaker from Southern California. Um, brief background on myself. I mean, I was raised a uh, Christian in Southern California with my family. It's definitely probably a very vital part of my journey in spirituality um, as I, I no longer identify as a Christian. However, I do feel that I have been um, probably the most spiritual uh, lately as opposed to any other time in my life. And I, I owe a huge uh, thanks to uh, music in my life for that. And after listening to uh, different spectrums of the music uh, industry sort of views of faith and spirituality, I really started to establish my own views of how I perceived the universe. And not all of it did apply to the biblical views that are preached in churches nowadays or even those I was raised on. And music became such a place of catharsis for finding other people that share the same mindsets or even vastly challengingly different mindsets than mine and actually accepting, hey, they may have an element of truth to their lyrics or their message. And lyrics is only really part of it. I mean, music in general for me has been such a huge element of my personal spirituality uh, down to instrumental music. Uh, ambient albums, things like that, that can really aid with meditation, uh, sort of breathing exercises, things like that. It doesn't always have to be cacophonous and loud and aggressive, uh, at least for me personally, for me to derive a spiritual connection with the music. And I think it is vitally important for anyone who is experiencing a crisis of faith or a deconversion, whatever word you want to use, something where you are challenging your own viewpoints of your spirituality. Look to the arts. This is one of the most vulnerable places a human being can be creating music, putting lyrics out from the heart, yet soft or aggressive music. And I think that it is such an important part of any music lover's journey to sort of find identity with what they listen to or find that they are foreign to what they've been listening to. And maybe they need to find something that fits more into their rut of music. But um, I think that music and spirituality always, for me, will go hand in hand. And um, again, has been such a vital part of who I am as an artist and who I aspire to be every day as a human being on this beautiful planet. This is Joshua Craig, Raleigh, North Carolina. So, like, music has always helped me to deal with my emotions. 
when I was a teenager, music helped me to channel my aggression, helped me to see the pain of depression, and helped me with you know, just to celebrate life. And there's nothing quite like connecting with a piece of music and knowing that there are others out there who feel the same way you do. People who get you. Music just helps you to feel you know, not so alone. But 25 years later, when I began my deconversion, I was fortunate. Because even though my friends at the time couldn't or wouldn't understand, bands and musicians that I'd been listening to for years, like King's X, David Bazan, Quiet Company, John Moreland, and a host of others were using their music to wrestle with the same issues that I was. They either weren't afraid to ask the questions or they just went ahead and asked them in spite of their fear. But their willingness to be so raw and open with such a difficult topic helped me to not feel alone. Their music helped me and continues to help me work through all of the, the Christ-haunted conversations that I encounter. So I'll end by paraphrasing with a few of the lyrics that helped me. Now the threat of hell is no longer hanging over my head like a halo, and I no longer have to waste my time holding on to beautiful eyes. To all the artists and musicians who have helped me on this journey, thank you. There was a time in my life where I ignored any music labeled, quote, Christian slash worship. And because of that, ex-Cademan's Call member Derek Webb fell by the wayside in my personal music journey. I, and I'm sure many others, had wrongly written him off as just another worship artist. Because of that detachment, though, I miss lyrics like, I am a whore, I do confess, I put you on just like a wedding dress. I am a whore, I do confess, you are just like a wedding dress And I run down the aisle Run down the aisle I'm Which apparently caused a lot of controversy within the Christian retail circles. It wasn't until the album Stockholm Syndrome came out in 2009 that I really began to take notice to Derek Webb's music again. I can tell what's in your heart by what comes out of your mouth And it sure looks to me like being straight is all it's about Yeah, it looks like being hated for all the wrong things like chasing the wind while the pendulum swings Cause we can talk and debate until we're blue in the face About the language and tradition that he's coming to say Meanwhile we sit just like we don't give a shit about the Christian landscape was changing. Many of us were becoming more vocal of LGBTQ rights and voicing our opinions to a church that didn't seem to want to hear us. Ultimately, it was his stance on sexuality and of the word shit that caused some controversy and Stockholm Syndrome was released with a clean version in retail stores and with an explicit version only available directly from Derek Webb. Through the past few years, Webb has been through other trials, including a very public split between him and his wife, singer-songwriter Sarah McCracken, as well as continuing to challenge his own personal stance on faith and who God is to him. He is currently writing a yet-to-be-named album, and I had the chance to sit down and talk with him. I was a Cademan's Call uh, fan oh. back in you know okay. back in the day, and my music was heavily uh, monitored uh, by the parental units. And mm-hmm. Cademan's Call got the okay. Wow, let's get in. All right. <laughs> Jumping ahead, I had some run-ins with Noise Trade when I had a podcast on independent music. And what's been your journey as far as jumping in the entrepreneurial music side of things? Yeah. I mean, when we started Cavemans, we were all so young. I was right out of high school. You know, I was was 19 when we started the band. It's it's what I did instead of college, Um, you know, except it was a 10-year plan as opposed (laughs) to a typical four-year plan. But um, so... So Cademan's like, I didn't really even know what I was doing. I mean, I, I, I played music since I was single digits. I mean, I, I've played music for a super long time. It's the only thing I've ever been good at or known how to do or had any kind of instincts on how to do. And, um, and so, and I've been in bands growing up my whole life and, and, you know, and Cademan's kind of happened for, you know, what would have been my first semester of college, um, right out of high school. And, you know, that, that was just kind of one of those serendipitous, like, 
it was just that moment and, and, and what we were doing and just kind of our age and the, and our perspective on the world at that time and the way, the, the way the industry was working at that time, it's just a lot of things kind of synced up for that to be an unexpected opportunity that turned into a 10 year career, you know, in that band. And, and I don't think any of us, I mean, I, I you know, every, every artist has delusions of grandeur and we were young and we were, you know, we, of course we thought we'd make it or whatever, but it was even, it was, it was so unlikely that you're going to make it in like the, or, you know, when it's, you know, when you're talking about like 92, 93, that's when we started the band. Like there was no, um, uh, middle-class segment to the, to the music market at that time. There were, there were, there were stars and there were hobbyists and there was nothing in between. And that's one of the major shifts in, in the, in the, in the business side of the music industry that has really changed is now the majority, the, the, the far majority of all the, in aggregate, the far majority of all the records being sold are being sold by by a collection of artists who don't sell more than two thousand two thousand records a year. It's it's that blue collar middle class segment of the music market that's selling that's outselling the head of the sales curve. It's outselling those four artists who are the only ones left who can still sell multiple millions of albums. There's only a handful of them. There's fewer now than there's ever been, and they're selling fewer records than ever. They're still selling in the millions, but the indie class of artists put together are selling more than the head of the sales curve now. And, but that, that didn't exist then. So, so yeah, I mean, it was unexpected and we wound up making a living at it having a career. We got signed to an imprint of Warner brothers and, you know, our, after a few years of being independent and ran our, our thing independent for some years and learned some really invaluable lessons. And so, um, you know, so that led to 10 years later, me starting my solo career around 2000, 2001. Um, and, you know, and then, you know, you, and I was older, I was 10 years older at that point, you know, I, and I was like late twenties and, and had some things figured out and had, and, and had a little more sense of like my voice in terms of like my perspective as a writer and as an artist and what was important to me, which is kind of what led me to, uh, pursuing a solo career, which is not a thing I really ever imagined doing early, early and at least all through Cademan's. I, I, I thought I'd be in a band my whole life if I could. Um, but, and then noise trade just came from me trying to solve my own problems as an artist. I mean, my, my MO in my creative life, be it as a songwriter or as a producer or as an entrepreneur is, is, has always been what I need and I can't find I make. <laughs> right. And so like if I need a soundtrack, if I'm looking for a soundtrack for a particularly complicated season of life and I can't find that I make it, you know, that's that I, that I write those songs. Um, I'm always looking for that thing because if I need it, probably somebody else does. Um, and Noi Trade was the same way in 2006, I guess it was. I I had this idea that I wanted to and there's a whole story to it. And it's and I've told it 100 times and people can go. And, I don't want to waste our time, but you can go and hear the origin story of Noise Trade elsewhere. But it's like. The point was I was looking for a way um, to give my music away for free, but in exchange for emails and postal codes. Like I, I wanted to give my music away, but for data. And I couldn't find an easy way to do that. And so I made it for me. And then the solution that we came up with and the way that it worked, it was just transcendent of my use of it. It was a bigger idea. I'd solved a bigger problem than just my problem. And so I immediately, so within a couple of years, me and fr a few friends had put a little bit of cash together and, and started the company and brought it to market. And, and, uh, you know, and so that's part of, kind of part of the, the way noise trade started, but it's like, even that was me just trying to solve my own problems, what I find and I need, I make. So it's like, um, so to me, it's felt like a pretty, I, I, I certainly did not see this entrepreneurial, um, side of my life or, or I, I didn't see any i mean the, the last almost five years of my life has been almost full time i mean I, I i kind of took a few years off from my music career to run noise trade we got acquired last year by um, pledge music which is a new york-based music company and and i still run it you know pretty full time i mean that's still my job i'm easing my way back into music now and i've got a record i'll put out this year and i've and i'm and i've got show that a ton of shows coming up before the end of the year. And so 
I'm trying to get back into it. But um, to me, as I have experienced it in real time, it has felt like a very natural kind of progression and expression of my personality. I'm a hyper analytical detail type. So I have more in common with like the typical artist manager than I do with a typical artist. Like I'm not wired like an artist. I'm not like abstract, poetic, creative type so much as I'm like an analytical, detail, logical type. And so I'm, I, so I think I have the minimum required talent to pursue a career in music. But the reason I've made a career out of it for 20 plus years is because I'm good at problem solving. I'm good at creative problem solving. So it's like, I've made a lot out of a little is the point. I mean, I run a lemonade stand. That's what I, that's what I, <laughs> and I've just gotten really good at that. I've just gotten good yeah. at figuring out how to take the little bit that I've gotten and make a, and make something out of it, you know? So, but, but all of this feels like looking at my wiring as I understand it and looking at the path that I've been on, it all makes sense to me, but, but most of it, I sure, I, I definitely didn't see coming. And your discography is pretty varied and you're one of those artists that as I was getting older through high school and college, kind of the cadence call kind of fell by the wayside. Yeah. I had heard you were doing more kind of like worship type music and everything, and that didn't really interest me. So, but I always knew. Did you hear that? <laughs> yeah. I've never really made worship music, but that's interesting. If anything, I mean, I make, I've made a lot of records with a lot of cursing on it and a lot of like <laughs> uncomfortable politics and topics of sexuality for evangelicals. Right. Like, I feel right. like I've kind of done the opposite. Yeah, no. <laughs> Like heard you'd come out of Cadman's Call and I, there was an assumption there. I never really pursued it. And, and actually what's interesting is like, so the records that Cadman was putting out when I left were worship records. Right. Like I, I, when Cadman's put out its first worship record is when I left. Okay. And which is, and it, and, and that was no small part of why, um, because I was not into that and that was not who we were to me. Okay. I can explain why we did it and I don't fault the band for that choice. That was just wasn't really my choice. And so actually, I kind of felt like I got out right around that time for that reason. But that's and I think and, and it's interesting that as I talk to people and most people aren't old enough to even most people don't even know who, who Cademans was. I mean, because that was that was a long time ago. It was 20 it was more than 20 years ago. So it's like the point being, I feel like a lot of people I've talked to who do have some context for the band think of Cademans as a worship band or something. Yeah. And what's interesting is the band did put out a worship record. But before that, we put 10 years of records out mm-hmm. that just trying to think critically about faith and culture and didn't have we, – we, I don't think we had one song with, with the word Jesus in it right. in all years that's, yeah. until, until that worship record. That's interesting. It's interesting how like – Do you know what I mean? Like worship yeah. product? Like that's yeah. such a category of music now. It's a whole genre. It's the majority of what's happening in what's called Christian music now. So – I totally understand it all. It's just fascinating. Like, and it's, and it's, yeah. it's fascinating to hear people's perspective on it. Yeah. Maybe it's guilty by association, you know, mm-hmm. type of thing. And as I distance myself from that, yeah. and I, I used to work for a Christian band. I worked, I worked for the band Pillar and we went on tour with sure, like sure. Skillet yeah, yeah. And, and things like that. And so working in that uh, industry and touring, you get jaded. And so anything that was in the yeah. Christian yeah. and worship section, I was like, I ain't going to touch it. No, you know? and I think that's the right instinct. I was <laughs> not questioning that. Right. So, um, so I started hearing more about you, like, well, well, the noise trade thing, and then I started seeing your albums, and I think I started paying attention more towards Mockingbird. Uh, mm-hmm. And then when Stockholm Syndrome came out, then I was like, this guy's ruffling a lot of more feathers, mm-hmm. you know, that I maybe I should really <laughs> take a look and see what's going on here. I'm just um, so pleased that I managed to find you again. That, that, <laughs> right. I mean, like, seriously, I'm I'm so pleased that somehow you heard something that re-engaged you. Yeah, I'm yeah. very happy about that. Cause that's a total mystery to me how that <laughs> happened. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So. Well, so I mean, so you 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 feel like you hadn't really that you'd been writing a certain way and you've been very inclusive with you know your kind of discovery of faith and everything and 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 processing that yourself. What happened with Stockholm syndrome? Did you become just a little more bold in these questions, or did people, or did people just finally like what? What do you think was the thing that kind of? Because all of a sudden it was like a big deal. I can tell you, for me, Stockholm syndrome felt to me like the, just the very predictable. Well, to me, predictable, but the very na- kind of natural next evolutionary step for me, honestly. Because so my, you know, my my first record was She Must Shall Go Free. It was 
felt like a, a, a stylistic holdover from the last Cadman's record that I had done, which had been the same year. You know, the last Cadman's record that I wrote songs for came out within months of my first solo record. I was recording them at the same time. And, um, and then, but it, so that felt like those songs, I wrote those songs thinking they were Cademan songs. And, and it was produced in a way that was what I liked at the time, which was kind of what Cademan was doing. It was a more kind of folk rock or whatever. And then my second record was more of an experimental kind of deconstructing a little bit. And then Mockingbird came out. That felt like my first like real statement. It like, that should have been my first record. Like that, to me, that was my debut record. It, it was like, finally found my voice, finally found. Um, and then uh, there was one record between that and Stockholm Syndrome. It was a record called The Ringing Bell. It was more of a little more of a rock and roll situation. Um, but I, I kind of feel like then I found my way. E each record was really super different one from the other, which I've always really liked doing. I mean, I, I like um, I like chasing what what I personally like. And so I just realized that, that like, I'm just, I wasn't into acoustic music anymore. I don't listen to hardly any acoustic music. I'm not really into it. It doesn't really do it for me. Singer songwriters kind of bore me <laughs> and uh, I mean, in, myself included. And so, um, but I was really into a lot of electronic music and a lot of urban music and a ton of hip hop. And so when it came to Stockholm Storm, I was like, stylistically, this feels like the next thing. This feels like, I mean, I, I, you could have predicted that if you're paying much attention to me. Um, and in terms of the subject matter, I don't ever, I don't feel like I make choices about what I write about. Um, I'm not super prolific. And so I don't write extra songs. I'm not one of these guys who writes like 30 <laughs> songs and chooses the best 10. I write 10 and record all 10. And I'm being totally serious about this. Like, I don't know that I've ever written a song that I've not recorded. Like if somebody had all the Cademan's records and all my solo records, there's a likelihood that you've heard every song I've ever written. Like I don't have a treasure trove of B-sides and rarities that's going to get released when I'm dead someday. Like <laughs> right. hearing, hearing all of it. I use every part of the Buffalo. And so for me, it's like I kind of get what I get and I record it. And, I, and a lot of the time, like if, if, I was to, if I was to tell you stories from a particular year of my life, you could for sure happen through that story be like, oh, that was, was that the year? That must have been the year before you put out Stockholm Syndrome. And you'd be right. Because it's like, whatever interests me, excites me, infuriates me, whatever those issues or topics are for me personally is what I inevitably write about. And I don't have any control over that, I don't feel like. I mean, editorial maybe. Or I could choose to just stop doing it. That would keep it from coming out. <laughs> sure that, I'm kind of stuck with what I with what I get. And so with Stockholm syndrome, I mean, that was, that's a record about race and sexuality and, and a very fine point And maybe a little bit of a siren was put on top of the idea of the, how the church fumbles with its, its general response to and care of the gay community, which is a, that had, that had gotten increasing for me over the years because I have a lot of friends, a lot of family who had been at the business end of that judgment for a lot of years. And it was getting more and more complicated for me to explain that to them. And, and that was also kind of a little bit at the peak of like Westboro Baptist and Fred Phelps and his family. And that was just all over the news and people see that and they hear a Christian and they, then they see a person and they hear a Christian. They're like, well, that's the same thing. And I'm like, oh, God. you know what? You're right to the world, it does, to everybody on the planet. I mean, only to people on the inside of this, of, of that thing, does it, do you understand all the nuances and the difference between a guy like John Piper and a guy like Brian McLaren. I mean, the, the, those are just a couple of Christian dudes to everybody inside Christian, inside the Christian subculture. Oh, we're like, that's like Trump and Hillary. It's like, it could, you know, <laughs> and so, um, but, but like most people don't appreciate the difference. And I was like, I need to, I'm not interested in drawing these lines between people and drawing the line between the, the people who are judgmental and the people being judged. But if there is a line drawn, Rest assured, I'm going to stand on the side of the people being judged. First of all, that's where I belong. And second of all, to, to my estimation at that time, I was like, that's where Jesus did stand and would stand um, on the side of those being judged, not those judging. And so I was like, when it comes to this issue and my friends and my family, it feels time to say something about it. It feels time to make art about it. It's just, it just was coming to a head for me in my life. So I made that record. So for, to me, it wasn't like, all right, it's time to really take it to the next level. 
it was like this is the that's just the record I made that year. Yeah. What year was Stockholm Syndrome exactly? I guess I'd say 2005-ish. Something like that, yeah. I'm trying to place where I was at the time. I was working for uh, a Christian clothing company called NOTW. They had these stores called C28. So, uh, numbers. Yeah. <laughs> Letters and numbers. Sure, I'll mean something, but you know, NOTW meant not of this world. That's wrong. There you go. And, there it is. Uh, C28 store was for Colossians 28. And I, there I, you I, go. I'm <laughs> talking. for it. Okay. Yeah. They, it was like hot top. It was like a Christian hot topic in stores. Sure. And sure. skate surf where I have some shirts probably still laying around. But um but I was working in this Christian in this I'd come from working for a Christian band, <laughs> working for uh Christian skate surf, right? And we're talking to Christian bands and everything. And I was, you know, getting a little more into horror movies. I had found out certain friends had come out as as gay or, or lesbian, and I was like, Oh wow, okay. And I had never really and my wife and I at the time, like like her and I, I remember having conversations, and her and I both being on the side of, I guess, the mainstream Christianity. I'm like, well, I may, I, you know, maybe the gay isn't the right. It's not natural. It's not. So we would have conversations, and that was the year that I started really, like, around that time, working through that stuff. Yeah. So those are important conversations, no yeah. matter where they start. Yeah. yeah. And then I started my, after that, uh, deconstruction of of the mainstream Christianity beliefs that I had. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think I explained all this in episode season one, episode one of the podcast. I go through all this, but yeah, just hearing more artists that were in this Christian circle, that it's not necessarily your guys's fault to get labeled this way. Like you said, like you're just being you, but right. this whole industry labels people a certain way and, and nobody can really keep up with everything, you know, all these expectations. So I hearing people that I had kind of looked up to as a Christian and and just would assume, oh, they're this way or they're, you know, they're more, maybe they're more godly than me because they're, they're touring around and making these records and making sure. people think. There is uh, a weird presumption, yeah, when you're like a professional Christian or something that you've got <laughs> something figured out, you know, but yeah. that's yeah. not usually, that's never the case. It's usually the opposite is the truth. Yeah. And I almost had to realize that and I kind of knew that I was already pretty cynical at the time sure. um, but seeing I guess more people question I guess what they believed for me was a good thing it kind of got me out of the box yes. the conversations between my wife and I changed and we were we became more accepting and I would come out the whole I'm, this is a round, long roundabout way no. of me saying that yeah. I started vocally standing up for gay rights gay marriage yes. uh, vocally and and it was getting political and then I would have these Christian friends that knew me from like church camp all of a sudden direct messaging me on Facebook and everything, just like concern for my soul. Sure. So all that set up, you know, for, so that happened to me in a small scale. You are somewhat on this pedestal. And like, like I said, not necessarily your fault and not necessarily, but it, it just happens with yes. Christian, with Christian artists in, this, in the industry. Seemingly more so with just with, typical pop artists or whatever right. did I mean I'm sure that happened to you and how how did you oh, yeah. deal with that well so let me say this I mean one thing is is like at least I know that if that happens and if I get into hot water which happens inevitably on every record for some reason um at least I know I came into it honestly because like I've always said that like the one and only job description of an artist is to look at the world and describe it look at the world and tell us what you see and implicit in that description will be something about the grid through which you look at the world or a worldview, a, a, um, uh, something you've constructed that helps you make sense of what you see. Everybody does it even unknowingly. Even if the grid is there's no order to this, this is nonsense. That is still the grid through which you are helping restore your sanity as you look at an insane world. So everybody has that. That's the only job description. And that's all I ever really try to do. I, I don't usually go in with like a I want to say this or prove this or argue this or, or win someone to this way of thinking. That's never, it's for me, it's always, I'm just going to, I'm looking at the world. I'm telling you what I see. And I certainly have gotten a, a fair amount, a lot of um, pushback and a lot of criticism for that. And, and, and almost always from the very typical sources. Yeah. Um, it's like, I always, I can, I can tell you before a record comes out, who's going to hate it and why, and that's okay. And it's like, to me, it's like, I don't go looking for that. 
I don't, I don't, um, I don't, that's not why I do it. And I don't go out of my way to cause that, but I certainly accept it as a risk of the, of the job. Right. I mean, and, and some artists don't feel that way and that's okay. There's not a right or wrong way to make art. Um, it's, it's, it's a subjective thing, but for me, I, the art that I love and have emulated in my career is the stuff that's disruptive and it's challenging and it's, that's what I like. I don't like easy music. Um, I don't like, you know, which is probably why I'm not super into singer songwriter music. Cause it's like, it's, it doesn't tend to be, unless you're talking about the fifties and the sixties. And now we're talking about Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and Bob Dylan and Joan Baez. And, you know, it, it's extremely challenging. Um, and that's what people love about that. If you love it. Um, the protest, you know, uh, movement and the, in, mainly in the fifties and sixties was when it happened in acoustic music. Now it's happened for more than a decade for almost 20 years. It's happened in hip hop. Hip hop is the new folk music for sure. But, um, but anyway, so for me, that's kind of part of why I'm in it. And that's part of what I like. So for me, when that happens, if anything, not only does it not bother me, but it's validation to me. Like, it's like, oh, I'm on the right, I'm doing, I'm on the right path. Like, there's a lot of people who really don't, are not happy with this. And, and, the, and the thing is, I don't want to overstate this. And I want to be careful when I use a word like this. Um, but there is, in my opinion, not just the way I do it, but I think in the creative, um, in creative work, there is for everybody, not just for me, not just for a few people, I think for everybody, um, and definitely for people who would claim some kind of spirituality, um, not necessarily more so than other artists who don't, but, um, that there is a real prophetic element to it. And what I mean by that is the speaking of truth to power. I don't mean like somebody who gets a, a, a you know, a, a exclusive word from the beyond that they bring to the world. I, I'm not talking about Jeremiah. I'm talking about just the speaking of truth to power. And so because I accept that, or at least I'm open to that being part of what my work might entail, then I'm cool with that. And I, and I kind of just feel like that's part of, that's just going to be part of my life and that's going to be part of my job. Now, even well beyond that, I also have a very, I've got a peculiar wiring and I've got a weird personality. And so like, um, I, I just, whatever that instinct or that bone in the body is that makes people really care what other people think, that people pleasing thing that a lot of people have, <laughs> whatever that is, I don't have it. Right. And it's not a thing that I pretend about. Like I just legitimately don't, am not bothered by people who don't like me. I just, it's not a thing. It just, it's, and if anything, I enjoy it maybe more than I should. <laughs> so now, now I have other problems. I just don't have that one. I did. <laughs> so I do have problems. So I've got problems. It's just, that's just people pleasing just isn't one of them. Yeah. And I, I'm not cavalier about it. I don't like go out of my way to make people not like me. Or, I mean, I mostly don't, but, um, but so for me, it's like, it, it, it actually invigorates me. Like I remember like when I was touring Mockingbird, um, the tour, I did a tour. I don't do this often. I'm about to do it, which I have a lot of anxiety about. Um, but cause the last time I did it was, was the story I'm about to tell you and it didn't really go well, but it's like, I don't typically tour a record before it's out. I don't, I don't typically, I've, in fact, I've almost had a rule about, I don't really play new songs too much on the road before people hear them on the record mm -hmm. and have them and hear them and sit with them and hear them in the context of all the other songs. I make albums, you know, I make statements that take a half an hour, not three minutes. Um, anything, something I can say in three minutes, I'm probably not that interested in saying. So, um, so anyway, I was out touring and it was, it was Mockingbird was done. It was about to come out, but it wasn't out yet. I was, and I remember I was, I think it was Lubbock, Texas. I was playing a show, playing a bunch of those new Mockingbird songs. And there was a, there were a few songs in particular, but I remember one moment even of one song after which literally a third of the crowd in the room, they must have all come together, but they all got up and just left. And by the end, I, I probably started with 600 people in that show. And by the end of the show, there were less than 200 Wow! because people, as I was playing the new songs, were just leaving. They just were not going to sit. They're not going to hear it. And, and at the end of the show, 
the promoter came up to me just mortified. He was just go, oh, just falling all over himself. He was so sorry. I was the worst. I'm so embarrassed. And, so, and I was like, no, no, no. Like this is this is one of the best nights of my whole career. Like, <laughs> like that's exactly what I. That's not what I wanted. But what I want is for people to listen and engage. I'm not here to play music while you dance. I'm, I, I mean, I, I would love for you to dance, but I, I'm not here to do background music. Like. Right. It's what I like. I mean, in the music I listen to, I can't passively listen to it. It takes all my attention. It requires a lot of me. The music I make requires a lot of people. So the fact that they were paying attention, I just want a response. If you stay, if you stand up and clap, fantastic. If you are outraged, you get up and you leave, fantastic. Those are equally thrilling to me. The people just sitting there not noticing that a line went by, that's what bothers me, which is probably why I kind of agitate. And I use language to do that. I, I mean, my music on the whole, I've been pretty comfortable like using language to kind of shake people to where they're paying attention and then I can get the response I want. That's what's important to me. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it's, it's all kind of rolled off me. And if anything, I've kind of enjoyed it. <laughs> Moving forward towards your new album, you, your last full album, uh, was, it was, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And I love you. Yes. Sorry we're going through the whole discography here, but I find it interesting. Like, that's what I find interesting about your music is how each album changes to the next. Stockholm Mm -hmm. Syndrome, very electronics driven. There's a harder, a little bit of a harder edge to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then the, the, the next album, you know, a lot softer and a lot more contemporary, I guess. Control, yeah, was the next record. Yeah, sorry, I skipped over Control. Um, you gotta remember, like, after Stockholm Syndrome, which was, I think, my biggest, I mean, maybe my first record has sold more total records. Um, I think I probably have the most copies of Mockingbird out in the world because that's the one that I gave away in 2006 that lit the fuse on Noise Trade. I gave away like 85,000 copies of that record online. So most people have that one. Not many of them paid for it, but that was my choice. And then Stockholm Syndrome was definitely like, for me, just a just a natural peak in my career for a minute. That was like a, you know, that was a, um, but you know, I followed that up with a, um, you know, with this control record, it took me two years to make it. And it was like, it was an electro rock opera about the singularity, you know, it's like <laughs> super weird record. And it, you know, it, it like had like nylon string guitar and weird drum beats and like sacred heart, you know, terrifying samples of like turn of the century um, sacred heart music. I mean, it's like weird, uh, um, uh, like Appalachian, you know, acapella church choir singing. It's really a weird record and no wonder it didn't sell anything. <laughs> but the, but the, but the point is, and then came, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And I love you. And I was talking to, uh, with a friend last night about this of all, uh, coincidences, but it's like that the, I was wrong record. I don't regret making it. Um, I wouldn't make a record like that today. And I feel uneasy about the fact that that's the most recent thing I have out there. <laughs> I, I, I really, like, I've got some things I really want to go on the record um, about. Like, I, I, I feel like if someone was to research me and only look up my most recent record or, or finish with that one, they, I feel like, I feel like it's, it, it's pretty outdated intel uh, out there. And so I'm really anxious, have been very anxious to get this new record done and out because I just, you know, as I mean, for, I mean, I know it's, it's narcissistic, but for 20 years I've made my living publicly expressing myself. Yeah. So pretty uneasy that I left, that it's been that long since a record's come out considering, um, how much there is to catch up on in terms of I am (laughs) in a lot of senses. So it's like, I'm super anxious to get the new record out. Um, but that record felt like the right thing to do at the time. And, and, and I won't say much more about it. Here's the last thing I'll say is that when I put out records, cause we have talked a little bit about how they're different one to the, one to the next. Yeah. When I put records out, I only have really one hard guardrail, one hard criteria for, um, for that a record has to meet for me to, to say, okay, well then th- this makes sense. Th- th- let, let's pursue this as the next record. Um, and that is that the record, whatever I'm working on has to be as, as highly ironic as possible in comparison to the previous record. So it needs to be like, what will be the last thing they're expecting? Um, 
based on what we just did. And the I was wrong record fit the bill. It was super because, I mean, it's essentially it's a bookend with my first record. I mean, it's the sibling to She Must and Shall Go Free. It came out at the 10 year mark. Um, after, 10 years after She Must Shall Go Free came out, I approached it like if I was making She Must and Shall Go Free today, an album about the church, what would that record be? What If I was making my first record this year, 10 years later, what would the songs be? What would the content be? What would it sound like? And I that, that was my pursuit. That's what I tried to do. I don't think that was expected after like three three records of heavy experimentation and really weird left turns and really went down the rabbit hole. To come back and make a record like that was unexpected. That's all. That's my only real one criteria. <laughs> I can tell you for sure that my next record that will come out this year, hopefully just in a few months, um, will be equally unexpected. <laughs> so nice. Well, that's what I'd heard because I, in a sense, I was playing catch up with your discography. Like, just, I found everything and I started going through it and. And I was when I and I had never heard uh, I was I was wrong. I'd never heard yeah. that record. And I put it on after I was listen, listening to Stockholm Syndrome, the control and then put that on. And it was like, yeah, huh. <laughs> I was like, I know. did something happen? Like, yep. and, 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 I, and, I, and I could explain if if there was more time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it, like even further, why that why that was my choice at that time mm-hmm. to, to make that record um, my last one and why I really, I, you know, I. You know, you can only make you, all you can do is make the best choice that you can given the information you have at the time. Yeah. All of that said, I would have, I would, I, I don't regret making it. I don't wish I could unmake it necessarily. Um, but, um, but th- there were reasons even beyond that why it felt like the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it feels weird to me in my discography. Um, it feels like I was on a certain trajectory and then it was like, <laughs> you know, and it's like this weird, um, I actually advised someone last night that if you were just to like pretend that record never happened, I think that you, especially with the next one I'll put out, it, it'll, yeah. my whole, my whole discography will make so much more sense. <laughs> if you just listen to my first record and I was wrong at the same time, yeah, just both in the first album category and then keep going. Right. It would make so yeah. much more sense. I'm literally like, it's like, you know, like, you know, like fans like resequence Star Wars. I'm doing that with my own <laughs> records right now. Um, nice. That's exactly uh, what I was thinking while I was listening to Excited because I listened to all your most of them like in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, what a what a turn back, you know, back to the front in a way. Well, yeah. Right. And that's what it was. It was a, yeah, it was a bookend. So you've had a, you know, have a turbulent past few years, I would say after, after that yeah. record. Um, and it, you know, I don't think this is the form to really, the platform to really go into all that. You know, you can expand if you want, but how, so writing this new album, I mean, you've done a couple of remix albums and, and things like that since then, yes. given the past few years, how have you approached the new album? I guess, content wise, we've spoke, spoke a lot about musically um how have you approached the content of this record yeah um it's a good it's a relevant question because i feel like it's a it's really this this new record feels like uh, very clearly different to me than any of the others and the reason is because you know when i make records the best way I can describe it, whether I mean to do it this way or not, this is just my observation is, well, there's two things to say. One is I feel like I've always had kind of a safe, another word would be healthy, but I'm not sure that's the best word. I'm going to use the word safe. I've had kind of a safe detachment from my records. By the time I'm putting them out, I feel pretty safely detached from them. It's like, it's, they all feel like very calculated risks to, to me. Let me say it. Let me say it that way. And and another way to say it is the way I approach making records and writing songs is I build a Trojan horse and I put ideas in it and then I push it out in front of people. Right. And, um, with this record, it doesn't feel like a calculated risk. It feels like a genuine risk. This is the first record that I've ever written and made. and 
been willing to like write things that are very unresolved things that, um, uh, and it feels like an act of desperation. It doesn't feel like a safe detachment. It feels like I'm, I'm, I'm in it in real time. Um, and so rather than building a Trojan horse, putting ideas in it and pushing it out in front of an audience this time, like I'm in the horse and I am the horse, you know, I mean, it's like, it, it, it feels vulnerable and, and it feels like a, it, like a very exposed, um, you know, thing. And so I can tell you for sure, I've never written songs like these before. And I've for sure never made a record like this before. I can tell you that for sure. So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, and I've, I said this at one point, I've said it, uh, maybe on Twitter or something, but it's like, I literally feel as, um, excited as I am completely terrified of it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm really just, I'm terrified of some of these songs. Um, because I'm just allowing myself to, to go where I got to go. And at the end of the, at the end of the day, man, I'm looking at the world, I'm describing it. And, and so as long as I, and, and I trust that process. And so as long as, um, as long as I feel like I'm doing that part of my job, honestly, I, I have to trust what comes of the process. I, I, you know, that I, I, I've, I've never really cared or thought too much about the product that I'm going to have at the end. Everything for me is the process and trusting that process and going through that process. And like all of my intention, all of my planning, all of my, it's all about the actual process of making something. It's not about what I'm going to make. I don't always know what, you know, and and, and you don't always know what you're going to make. And sometimes you get ha- halfway through making something, you realize you're making something different or the thing that wants to get made that wants to come out of you is not the thing you wanted to make. You can either forcibly make the thing, manhandle it and, and manipulate it and make it into the thing you wanted, which doesn't typically make re- very good art. And probably what you're going to wind up making is going to be more reflective of the compromises that you made to make it uh, and, and how difficult it was as opposed to just, you know, going and say like, what do I want to learn? What tools do I want to use? Who do I, who do I want to collaborate with? All my choices are about process. None of it is about, this is what I want to wind up with at the end. Cause that's totally out of my control. Um, the process determines that. And then I accept whatever I get. Um, I mean, I'm just playing the claw game, man. <laughs> you know, so I, I can't, I, there's, I have no control. All I can do is position that thing and, and have some pick, pick the right machine with the things that have the best hooks on them that it, and then push the button. And what, what drops out of there, if anything, is just not up to me at that point. So I'm approaching this one just the same way. It's just yielding terrifying results. <laughs> There's so much when someone goes through kind of a deconstruction of their faith. Do you yes. felt like you, I mean, you obviously looking at your discography, you can almost see this guy has thought about some things and, and deconstructed things. And, and a lot of people stay, uh, either stay deconstructed or stay angry. I have friends yeah. who I knew them as, you know, charismatic Christians, evangelical Christians one way, and then something happens and they, uh, deconstruct their faith and they walk away and they stay in a very angry place and a very bitter place. And that's the kind of where they stay and they find other, other people like, like that. And there's this huge, like, uh, uh, you know, this, this huge, like atheistic movement going on. Like very, but to me, it comes across very fundamentalist. Like I call them fundamentalist atheist. I know, Uh, man. And then there's people like, you know, Michael Gunger, I've spoke about him on the show who was a worship leader who's gone through his own deconstruction, but he, is more trying to build or trying to rebuild, trying to reconstruct. You can't reconstruct without the deconstruction phase. So exactly. You have to break it all down. And that's what I, the path that I've been on too. And I'm, I've always been okay with never, I'm okay with not knowing the answers to the big questions. I'm, I, I approach the Bible a different way. Now I still, uh, respect and cherish like, reading the Bible when I have time and reading other theologians and things when I have time. And that all sounds more to me like, I mean, I, I know you, you, you know, you, you said, you know, like, and I've, I've, I've seen it too, you know, just like the, um, the, um, the trends of atheism, but it's like, to me, at least, or at least what I would prefer, what I hear you at least hinting to, I, I'm not saying for you, but in general, in the way you, you approach it, which I think is a good approach that sounds less like atheism, more like agnosticism, 
Right. Yeah. Which is the which is the difference between belief and knowledge. So it's like atheism is to say I know these things and I don't believe them. Agnosticism is saying I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't. I can't even make a call on whether or not I believe it because I'm not sure I know it or can know it. Um, and so you have to kind of start with. I mean, I, I would never be so presumptuous intellectually to, to be an atheist because that would be like I know something and I don't believe it. That that to me sounds. You're right. Like the the pendulum at the you know the the, the needle buried on the other end of the spectrum from fundamentalism. I know this. I'm certain about it, and I believe it. I know this. I'm certain about it, and I don't believe it. In between that is like, I don't know. I'm not sure what I know. I'm not sure what can be known. I mean, I'm, I hope to know something. That'd be awesome. It's like, so I tend to, I tend to resonate more with my with, with that than I do the other, for sure. Yeah. Um, did, I mean, did you have a kind of a deconstruction phase where I have definitely gone through. Oh uh, yeah, a lot, a lot, of, a ton, a lot of deconstruction, and um, and honestly, I think it's been, I'm, um, it's been such a good thing for me. I, I feel like, but and because he, here's what happens, and the, and this might be familiar language with some of the folks who are listening or watching or whatever, but I think what happens is everybody has. Um, I haven't talked a ton about this. I think maybe it was some friend's podcast I was on and I kind of stumbled into this language, but it's like <laughs> what happens is there, I feel like people have everybody, but especially, uh, evangelicals or whatever. It's something I've just observed is you have your stated beliefs and you have your practical beliefs, right? Which is another way of saying you have your kind of your hypothetical beliefs and your actual beliefs. And, and I think that, so, so there's like the one thing that you, and, and your stated beliefs are the things that are like, that's the thing you can craft and you work on and you pile knowledge into, and then you prune and you like, you, you work on it like a garden, but it's like a thing. It's like, you're constructing it. That's like your worldview, your grid is like your, 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 your stated beliefs. But then you have your practical beliefs, which is like what you believe in practice, what someone observing you who was deaf and couldn't hear you talk about all the things you believe just observed you or when you come up against some real crisis or some, some, something really hard. Um, what do you actually do? What does your actual behavior show that you believe? Where do you go with that? Do you call out and, and what do you call out to? Um, and when you go into emergency mode, survival mode, how, what, what, what are your methods that will speak to your, um, your practical beliefs, um, as opposed to your stated ones. And I think what happens is if it goes unexamined over time and people get too comfortable with language they're using to describe their stated beliefs, you get, you get to where you just kind of fall in love with that language. You're in a relationship with your words, with the words, the categories, the language you use to describe yourself and your spirituality. And, and if gone, if, if gone unexamined for too long, you realize you're using words that don't even mean anything to you anymore. Just convenient shorthand for questions that don't have short answers. And right. And we're obsessed with, with feeling like we have to have short answers for questions that don't have short answers. Evangelicals, especially. So it's like, um, so what I found for me, I, I think when people talk about, they describe, um, um, uh, deconstruction or maybe a, maybe a, a softer way to say that would be like, you know, like, like seasons of doubt, things like that. I think what people are describing is when your stated and practical beliefs start to get, they start to, di- they're, they're not in harmony anymore. They start to get, and, and that there's this weird feeling where the two aren't lining up. And I think there's a point at which they get so misaligned that that it starts to make you feel kind of crazy and because it takes energy to keep both going, but the truth, your practical beliefs are your only beliefs. That's the truth. What you believe in practice is your only real thing that you're believing about anything. And there's a real danger in setting up and constructing around you these, these stated beliefs and this crafted curated, pruned, 
um, you know, system of belief and it's got great theologians and great quotes in it and it's got, you know, but it's, and it's got great words, man, you really got your words down and it's like, you know what all the big, you can talk about your eschatology and you can talk about your, it's like, and that's all fine. I mean, I'm not saying that that, that, that pursuit is bad, but it need. but if it doesn't become, what I would usually said is if theology doesn't become ethics, then, then they are instruments of percussion. Um, it's ringing cymbals and clanging gongs. If, if that theology doesn't become ethics, which is just if your stated beliefs don't become practical beliefs. Um, and, and I think that in moments of deep crisis, in, mo- in emergency moments like that in your life, what happens is you run out of energy to do both. And what happens is you wind up only having your practical beliefs. And so that's kind of the process I've gone through is, is sorting out what of all this is my stated belief, wishful thinking maybe, and what of this is my actual belief. And and I'm left only with the latter at the end of the day. And I think it's a point where I was like, you know, I'm, I don't have the energy anymore and I, I, I'm not interested anymore when people ask me how am I and they mean spiritually. How's your walk, right? Um, right yeah. Hard thing people ask. And I think it's, I think yeah. it's care. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to poke fun of those people. But I got – I just tired of giving my answers reflecting my stated beliefs. I know, I know what they were, I know what they're looking for. Like I know what boxes they're looking for me to check in those moments. And I got to, I was like, you know what, what happened? First of all, it does me no favors to do that both with them and especially with myself. Cause then things that need examining and processing and need you to keep moving through to discover that that's part, that's, that can be the reconstruction phase. Maybe but like that doesn't get done if I'm leaning on my stated beliefs and ignoring my, my behavior, ignoring my, my, my practical beliefs, then I'm, I'm, I'm stunting my own growth spiritually, potentially. And so it doesn't do me any good. So I was like, what would happen if I just stopped giving those other answers and just abandoned all that stated belief and just went for the practical stuff and just answered the questions that way? And, and so like a few years ago, it'd be like if someone says, hey, how are you? And like, where are you spiritually at this point? I'd be like, huh, well – I think on my on most days and some of my best days, I think I am a suspicious. I'm a distrusting theist, maybe like I think maybe there is something out there and I know that I can't trust it. That's where I am right now. And I'm not saying right this minute. Yeah, it's maybe worse. (laughs) But, 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 but that, but that, but that's what I would have said. Right. Yeah. Like, what? And all of a sudden I just started saying that instead. And my friends are like, Oh, <laughs> and, and then you really get down to like, what do you really want from me? Like, do you want to take an oath and walk with me? Or were you just checking in? Are you doing what you do to people? Like when you were a kid and you walked around the mall, handing tracks out, like, what do you, what, 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 what are you really looking for? Do you love me? Do you care about me? Do you want to be in my life and my story? Do you want to get wrapped up with all that? Or do you just, or do you just want to, are you being polite even? That's okay. There's no, but it's like, that's where you find out. And honestly, I was like, and that's the truth. So, um, and that was the most liberating thing in the world. And, and, and I have just followed that instinct because that's the only real, that's, that's the only reality I'm living in. I can keep talking about my state of beliefs all day long. I've studied theology for 25 years. You know, I mean, Bazan would say that if he's an expert in anything, it's evangelical Christianity. He doesn't associate with it. He does associate with it. He doesn't believe it. But he would still say, yeah, if I've got people in the world, those are probably my people. Even though I'm not, you know, he, he, would, he doesn't claim faith, but it's like, that's the thing he knows the most about of everything. Because he studied it so much and lived with it for so long. And I, I feel the same way about it. I'm not saying I'm an expert. I'm saying if it, it's a thing I know more about than other stuff that I know about. Right. And so it's like it'd be easy for me to fake that. It just it just there's just no benefit to it. I've got no energy. I can't do both. There was a great exchange between you and David Bazan on Twitter when you were in an airport and the acoustic version of Oblivion. <laughs> it was listening to that and uh yeah dude oh man i mean his most recent record his his music 
I mean, I, I know Dave and we're kind of friends and I mean, I'm a big, way bigger fan than I am a friend of his, <laughs> but he's a guy that I interact, that I, I'm expected to act normally and interact with and hang out with on occasion. Yeah. And, um, which is hard because I just, I, his music just nourishes me and it's like he, the, the level of vulnerability that, and the, how faithfully he is a witness to his reality and the risks that he takes to tell his story and stories other stories is remarkable to me. And I, and I, and I, he's one of the most important artists in my life and certainly of my, of my life, uh, in and of, and, um, and you know, like there are seasons of life, like I said, where you need soundtrack and, and, you know, it's like anybody who's either looking at suspicious of or eyeing the off ramp when it comes to spirituality, you get handed a Dave Bazan record. I mean, it's like comes in the gift bag on the way they take the Bible back and do the gift bag. And it's like, you know, I mean, and he's an important guy if you're trying to thoughtfully process that stuff. It doesn't matter which side you fall on or are in currently. He's, he, you know, his music is important. Yeah, no, it was great because the, because that song is more uh, electronic on the record and, but hearing it stripped down. The version, yeah, that, that the Bazan film guys were putting out that I heard that, that I heard that day. Oh, I was really stunned by it. Was it a lyric or was it just the, as a whole, did it, did you approach the song on a new level? I, I'm sure that things jumped out at me that hadn't previous. I mean, you, you hear somebody reinterpret something and that'll happen, but yeah, I, I mean that song, that whole Blanco, that whole and care, the new record, all the records, everyone, but the newer stuff that he's doing, especially for me. Um, but that song is so good, but yeah, dude, there's, I mean, and also like, you know, I'm, I'm about to put this record out and I'm preparing myself for the fallout and I hear a song, I hear a lyric like, um, uh, did you tell it like it is? Cause you thought it would pack them in, mm-hmm. you know, it's like him thinking about like, and, and I don't know if it's, if he meant it this way, but I mean, I hear that and I think like you wonder deep down of like, maybe this is going to be a good career move. Probably not. But but maybe if I really tell it like it is and I really go all the way and really pull my ribs all the way apart as far as I can, people are going to are going to crowd in to see that probably it's going to be harder and lonelier than it is currently. (laughs) But, but, you know, like because that whole that whole that that whole hook at the end of that song is, you know, um, you know, like it, it speaks to like there's a point beyond which you can't I can't question your choices more it's too late for second thoughts like you have to just commit to the path that you've that you're on and and, and anyway I, I, everything about it but so I, I, I'll be like <laughs> no it's good it's fun to seeing I, I love seeing other artists kind of be fans of each other and, and those kinds of interactions is great and his response was sorry <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no because I was like I'm at like gate 12 and I'm like sobbing <laughs> asshole <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that happens. Well, I'm really excited to hear the, the new record. I know people were asking because I said I was going to be interviewing you and like, get them to play the new the new album. And uh, we'll let everyone uh, you're, you're going to be releasing stuff in time once it's once it's ready. I've got like 30 shows on the books between now and the yeah. next month. I mean, it's a lot of shows getting booked right now. And I'm going to be playing. It's going to be that whole Mockingbird all over again thing. I'm going to be <laughs> playing the new songs and probably it's a little awkward when people walk out of a house show. Oh, well, <laughs> Oh man, I couldn't imagine. I'm braced. That, it's gonna be fine. <laughs> As an artist, I really think, and that's why I kind of came back around to listening to your music was finally seeing the honesty in your character coming through in your music. Uh, for me, means a lot more. I'll connect to those artists a lot more if there's honesty and if and and i think that's how we need to be in life in life is pursuing truth be vulnerable about the truth you're pursuing be vulnerable about what you don't know and those are the types of people that especially lately i've gravitated to and and when you see a musician doing that especially one who's been roped in with the whole christian music industry um and there's that it's scary to venture if that was your living which Yes, I think I feel like you kind of skirted in between, but it is scary to move on from. And the day I've got to get these people's money, <laughs> you know, so it's tricky. Yeah, yeah. no. If I'm upset or agitate them. I also have to get their money, and so it's yeah. tricky. Yeah, it's. Uh, do you feel like 
you're always going to be roped in the Christian music industry and then your own thing. I think because I've spent so many years that you don't, you don't spend 10 years in a moderately successful Christian band. I mean, we were squarely marketed that way. And then my whole solo career has been at least peripherally marketed that way. I apparently, I just can't cuss enough on a record to find. (laughs) I mean, even day, even Bazan, I mean, a lot of people, believe it or not, would still attach Christian, Christian music, Christian artists or something to him. I mean, it's fascinating. It's a thing that's really hard to get marketing categories, man. They, they set deep. And once they're, once you've got one, it's really hard to get free of it. And I've spent 20 good years under that. And so it's like, nah, I'll probably, it'll always be part of, it'll always be part of Dave's story. Um, it'll probably always be part of mine. And that's okay. Because it's like, like I said, it's like, it's a thing I probably am not going to stop writing about anytime soon, no matter which way I go. Right. But that's the thing though. I feel like you don't write in a pandering manner to that audience. You are very truthful to who you are, what you're going through. And that's all I can tell is my story. If you resonate with it, then stick around. I want to thank all of you for listening. I really hope you're enjoying this series as much as I am. It may extend past three episodes. We'll see. Next week is David Bazan. I'm really looking forward to uh, putting that episode out for you all to hear. Music on this podcast episode provided by the Candle Park Stars. And, of course, by Derek Webb. You can find all of Derek Webb's music over at his website, DerekWebb.com. And that's where you will find information about his upcoming album. So keep an eye out for that. Again, I am doing this weekly mini podcast called the AXPX Diaries. If you would like to get these, get access to these, please become a patron. It's only a dollar a month and you'll become a patron saint. It's over at patreon.com slash the AXPX. Again, all the links to all the social media and to this Patreon uh, are over on the website at theaxpx.com. Thank you all so much for listening and supporting this podcast. We'll talk to all of you next time. Bye.